0: The rest of us uh, today are going to uh, look at uh, uh, Psalm 1. Um, Text is in the bulletin and uh, also up on uh, the screens behind me. Psalm chapter 1, a familiar passage, I'm sure, uh, to, uh, to many of us. Text is printed in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. This is God's word, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So um, I'm going to ask a question, not a rhetorical question. I expect an answer. Uh, okay, and the way you're going to answer is... If, if it's true of what I'm about to ask you, raise your hand. I'm not going to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye closed. It's just simply uh something to learn about the congregation. So do we have any English majors in the room? Raise them. Come on, Margie. Come on. Get your hand up. Okay. Porter. Where else? Oh, Beth. Toy, that's right. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Where else? Did I miss anybody? Scott, you're an English major? I thought you were like... Quantum physics or something like that. All right. Okay, good. Well, there, why do I ask that? Well, uh, because we just read a poem. Psalm one's a poem, right? And so for many of us, right, probably one of the things that uh, never occurs to us is that it's a poem, right? That it's, that, it, that it's God's word. It's authoritative. It teaches us. It challenges us. It comforts us. Uh, it's, it's God speaking to us, no doubt, but this, this text here, this is a poem, right? Uh, and so one of the things that happens to us is we probably, uh, are, aren't used to reading poetry. Many of you aren't. Uh, although this week was the week of cheesy poetry, right? And that, uh, and that what happens once a year around the 14th of February, right? Um, I had several couples come up to me uh, at the coffee cart and Tell me their husbands, who like are unbelievable, wrote their wives' poems when they were first courting them and i these guys I would really like to see those poems, but anyway um, <laughs> that would be awesome anyway um so i, I it's, you know if you know Psalm one at all you know you've you 've heard it misinterpreted a lot uh. Like one of the things is commonly uh, misinterpretation of it is, is, uh, you know, you don't want to walk in the council of the wicked because pretty soon you'll be standing with them. And then next thing you know, you'll be sitting with them. Uh, That's not what Hebrew poetry is. That's simply saying, don't identify yourself with ungodly people, period. And it does it in three ways. Hebrew uses a lot of things in threes like that to say the same thing over and over again. Um, so let's, let's look at a poem this morning and let me, uh, it'll help you, uh, help me illustrate for you how we're going to go at this and see the good news that God has for us today. So, uh, I memorized this poem when I was in high school, stopping by the woods on a snowy evening, I don't know if any of you even know who Robert Frost is. He was the first, uh, uh, first poet laureate of the United States, I believe. Uh, he actually read a poem at uh, John F. Kennedy's uh, inauguration. Uh, and th- isn't that right? Didn't he? I think that's true. So um, uh, this is a very simple poem and one that, uh, as you'll see, gets abused all the time. Whose woods these are, I think. I know his house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there's some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. Unlike yesterday, right? That was the loudest snowstorm I've ever heard in my life. It is disconcerting. So the woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. So that last stanza uh, is one of the most quoted stanzas in poetry in eulogies. Did you know that? Eulogies. Promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. So everybody's assuming that this is Frost writing as he's thinking about stuff he's got to do before he dies. Um, uh, The present prime minister of uh, Canada read this poem uh, in a eulogy for his father, a former prime minister of Canada, and especially that part about he he kept his promises and now he has no more miles to go before he sleeps. I remember watching an interview with Frost, and the interviewer was trying to go deep in this about, you know, wow, this is such a profound thing about the nature of existence and that kind of stuff. And he said, well, I was actually writing a poem about the woods and being outside when it was snowing. And I said, the woods are lovely, dark and deep. And I needed words to rhyme with that. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I remember that. I don't think I dreamed that up. So... Isn't that funny, right? It's very rich how the Lord has a sense of humor about some things like that. So uh, with that in mind, that we have a poem before us, an authoritative poem, a, a, a poem that offers us correction and challenge and comfort, uh, let's look at this and, and kind of unpack a little bit of the images here and try to get at how this poem helps us uh, understand and uh, be uh, comforted by the fact that we are connected, that we are in union uh, with this God, and that this is the effect of it in our lives, right? So with beautiful imagery and great sim- simplicity, someone is making a poetic argument. The writer here is not just telling us the way things are. He's certainly doing that. But he's also trying to convince us. He's also trying to make an argument to engage our minds and engage our hearts and our affections with the God who loves us. Right? So what's the argument? Next slide. So the argument consists in at least these three points. All right? There are really only two ways to live. Therefore, the psalm writer only sees two kinds of people. Now, that's stark, harsh, black and white, whatever, however you want to you want to see it. But the way he speaks here, he speaks of the righteous and he speaks of the, uh, the ungodly, the wicked. He speaks of the tree. And he speaks of the chaff, right? And so he's very clear that there are two kinds of people and two kinds of, uh, of uh, lifestyles and two kinds of destinies, honestly. So the way we tend to think about that is, oh, no, 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 no. It's not like that at all. In fact, there are a million different kinds of people or, or there are black people and there are white people or there are conservative people or there are liberal people or whatever. But in God's economy, when God looks at the world and he looks at us, he sees those who are united to him and those who aren't. And that's really the only kinds, the only kind of, of, of people uh, that there are uh, uh, in the world. So to further illustrate this, the sum writer compares a tree that is fruitful and well watered with dead chaff. Now, you probably have an idea of what a tree is. Most of us knows what trees are. Uh, if you're if you're, you might not know what chaff is, chaff is the remainder of what you get when you grow grain. It is the part that covers the grain, the husk around it that you don't really uh, uh, use for anything. Uh, it's uh, uh, when when I was a kid and we would put up uh, um, corn or we would put up uh, hay. It's a lot of dust and a lot of stuff that just flies around. No root, no use. No good for anything, and ultimately, at least during the psalm writer's time in history, people would sow their fields, they would harvest, and then they would burn the chaff because it really had uh, 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 no uh, no value, right? Thirdly, the argument is those who are like trees will have life, a life known and protected by God, ending in beautiful communion with him and his congregation. Right. So that's what you have to see about this is so the comparison is not just in terms of the way uh, 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 of how these folks live, but it's also a comparison of their destinies. Right. So the the uh, the righteous person here, the person connected to God uh, through Jesus Christ actually ends up uh, prospering and in the end has a relationship uh, with a congregation. Uh, he's not just by himself, but is connected, belonging to not only to God, uh, but to, to one another right now. And he says uh, that the wicked are not so. Actually, what it says is not so the wicked, not so. Now, one of of the things that you may be thinking about this is that this psalm seems very Pollyannish because it seems to indicate to us that the person who entrusts himself to God, the person who has taken God at his word, the person who belongs to God through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that person, it sounds like his life is nothing but prosperity, right while the 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 other uh uh person the uh, uh the wicked person, we look at them and we off, often think, well, you know they look like uh, their lives are uh are, are pretty good right Well, the fact of the matter is uh, uh, the way uh, the scriptures view us, the way God views us and the economy of god, uh prosperity, the good life. Uh God's perspective on that uh comes from the fact that our life does not flow from ourselves, from our achievements, or from our works, or from what we make happen, but flows from his work in, through, and for us. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna make that very clear to you by some of the other images in the in the poem in, in just a minute. Um, and so that is the definition of prosperity. The definition of prosperity in God's economy is not money, uh, success, reputation, uh, happy family, uh, any of those things. By definition, uh, prosperity in God's economy is simply this, that you belong to Jesus Christ. That's it. OK, that's that's it. That is where prosperity ends and begins. Because that's where your life ends and begins, right? And so so rather than kind of add on all these other things that we tend to, that's the focus that the psalm writer has for us here this morning. So here's what, uh, now you may have a number of reactions to this. Some of you may be saying, yes, that is so awesome. I am ready to see the chaff in my life burned up. Right? I'd love to see God come and once and for all, you know, deal with the chaff that's in our world. Some of you may be thinking, well, I don't agree. You know, my God uh, doesn't view people this way. My God doesn't have a perspective that says either you're connected to me or you're not. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't bless everybody, right? At one point in time, the chaff was alive. In that sense, I mean, God, the, the rain falls on uh, people who belong to God and people who don't, right? But the fact of the matter is, uh, you cannot read the scriptures, you cannot read uh, the work that uh, God has done in and through Jesus Christ. If, if Jesus Christ is the central issue in the Bible, if he's the central hinge on which history turns, uh, then either you're connected to him or you're not, Right? So that's, you know, that's it's it's, we might not like that. We may not agree with that, but that seems to be the way it works. And then lastly, this seems contrary to grace and the gospel. And it seems to indicate an undue emphasis on my will and my actions. In other words, one of the ways you could misinterpret this psalm is to think that the way you get planted by the streams of water and the way you get blessed is by meditating, studying, spending time in God's word. And I'm here to tell you. Every one of us could stand to do a lot more of that. Wouldn't hurt you. Wouldn't hurt you. Wouldn't hurt us at all to, to, to read a little bit more of the scripture. Actually, what I think it would probably be better for many of you is to read less of the Bible, but more deeply. That, that actually might, in the end, be more helpful. But hey, you know, we all act like there's an AP and an IB course that we're on here. And that we get extra credit by, you know, reading more, right? Which, okay, but I'd like to just read one thing and have it make a difference in my life today, frankly, than to skim along the the surface and say, you know, I checked that out. So check that off my list. I got that done today. So here's the thing: um, what you can you can read the Bible as that Francis Schaeffer quote at the beginning of the uh, the bulletin says, all day long, right? But unless the sovereign work of God is in you to change you, to, to reorient you, to apply those truths to your lives, it's simply a mechanistic kind of thing, uh devoid of relationship that really ultimately uh, is not going to be a fruit-bearing experience in our lives. So so how are we to understand this and, and how are we to get at this? Well, a, a couple of things, right? And I'm indebted uh, for these six points. We've already done a bunch more. I've got you six more. We'll go through them quickly. I see that stunned look. Uh, I'm indebted for these six points for my friend, uh, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, he preached on this text in 1850. quite a sermon. So first of all, the righteous person knows their need and day in and day out has an eye toward the fact that there is a God who created him, who loves him and who redeems him. Right? So that is, that is one of the things that you have to see about the orientation of these two kinds of people. Now, now the fact of the matter is, I am tempted all the time to forget this. I am tempted all the time to think, really, I am alone, I am autonomous, I'm the, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the one who, you know, who, who goes about my life in, in the particular way that I go about it, and every now and then God intersects with that. When the fact of the matter is, my life, my being, who I am, uh, is is not up to me, uh, but is up to the one who knows me, who loved me, who died for me, who rose again for me. And my identity, my destiny, my day-to-day life and work is centered around that. And thankfully, even when I'm not aware of it, even when I'm not praying, even when I am not meditating on the word of God, the fact is I am in union with Christ. That's mysterious, isn't it? That, that he never lets go of me, that he holds me day in and day out, that he makes promises to me, that he fulfills those promises, and that he is actively at work in my life even when I'm clueless about it. Praise God for that, right? Right? i need to remember that uh, sunday night last last sunday night um i was uh i'm always in a death spiral a little bit on sunday afternoons and sunday nights and uh, uh you could you could hear me crashing and burning this past sunday night because i'm <clears throat> sitting on our sofa enjoying my favorite snack my favorite snack are dried turkish figs i know you never heard of that. Uh, you should go try them, but let me warn you about them ahead of time. There are many things to be warned about dried Turkish figs, but one is some of them come with stems. And so I'm crunching away on one Sunday night, and there's suddenly there's a loud noise in my mouth. And I'm thinking, well, that's odd. And next thing I know, that is the biggest fig seed I've ever felt in my life. Well, it's not a fig seed. It's about half of one of my teeth, which sends me further into the death spiral. You know, today was a terrible day. You know, I didn't do a good job. Here I am, God, trying to sit quietly in my house. And what did you do for me today? You broke my tooth. Hey, it gets better. The spiral only continues because... What happens next is I begin to think, you know, hey, God, you know, if you really wanted to bless me, why would you break off my tooth? And now I'm going to have to spend time, energy and money getting that fixed. And then it gets better. The way it gets better is the next voice in my head is what is wrong with you? You bit the pit. God didn't. Why are you blaming God for your problem? What kind of person are you? Much less pastor. So now. We're in like the third or fourth circle of hell, right? As you, as I'm thinking about this, right? Things are just getting, looking up more and more because the promise keeping, loving God who is for me and uh, is uh, pouring his life into me and out for me is completely absent, Right? What difference might it make for us uh, if we woke up every day and the one thing that we remembered about whatever happened to us in that day is that there's a God, he loves us, he has redeemed us, and the clearest and the most profound evidence of that is that he not just tells us that he loves us, but that he demonstrated his love in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Second. The righteous person didn't come to this conclusion on their own. Right. They are like a tree that is planted. Now, now, this is something that for years I missed about this psalm, but I think this is the real heart of the psalm. The tree that's, that's used here as an image for the believer is not a tree that got planted by the rivers of water by accident. It got by the river of water by someone's special care put that tree there so that it would have it's a planted tree it's not a wild tree it's not it's not a tree that just got scattered there or some sort of shrub it's planted someone thought about that tree someone thought about where to put it someone thought about put placing that tree in a place where it would receive nourishment where it would receive hydration where it would receive everything that it would need in its place in its season to be and to do what it was designed to be and to do, to bear fruit, to, to, to rest in the, the ongoing, never-ending provision that is the river of God's spirit, his grace. His mercy, his word to us, right? So one of the things that you have to see there is, is that a tree that is planted gets special attention and special care. Someone is stewarding that tree. Someone prunes it. Someone picks the fruit. Someone checks on it. Someone sees to it. Someone is aware of it. It's not just a tree growing out there wildly. It actually has someone who cares for it. It was planted by a person, right? who who loves that tree, who is aware of it, and who is caring for it, right? So you don't just kind of willy-nilly slide into this. You are where you are, and you are who you are in Christ by his design, by his care, by his concern, by his work, okay? They're objects. We are objects as these trees of his special care, Thirdly, being situated by the rivers of water causes the tree to be ever alive. Because the rivers of water are an unending source of nourishment and life. The river never runs out. The river never quits flowing. Even in times of drought, the river still flowing. And it's not just bringing water to the tree, but the river actually is the source of nutrients. The river is actually the source of of everything that that keeps the tree alive. So so when everything else in the world may be dry, when everything else in the world may be hot, when everything else in the world may may be terrible, this tree is going to prosper. When, when I was a kid, on our farm, we had one field that we called the bottom field, uh, and the the reason why it was called the bottom field is it was in a low spot, right over, right by. Uh, the creek that ran through our property and it had, it had actual, um, uh, uh, springs that bubbled up in different places in the field. And we would plant that field every year, um, and it didn't matter whether it rained or not, it always produced a crop. It was remarkable. And I, I, I can remember being in the middle of that field when When it was actually dry and it was hot and there would be these little piles of mud with holes in the middle of them that were made there by crawfish. That's how close the water was underneath the ground to the surface. And they would bury up, burrow up out right in the middle of our cornfield. Right. So so that whatever we planted there, it grew. It was unbelievable how much it grew. Well, the fact is, that's exactly what's happening here. Now, the thing to note about this is that this this unending uh, source of nourishment in life causes us to be fruitful in season. Now, what does that mean? Fruitful in season? Well, the tree doesn't produce fruit when it's not supposed to. Uh, The tree produces fruit as its life as its season, as its maker, as its caretaker sees fit. So the caretaker provides all that is necessary for life, for 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 uh, 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 prosper, prosperity spiritually in the in our lives, and he looks and sees to it that these things actually end up causing us in our season to produce the fruit that he desires. Right. Um. Sometimes you're going to be more fruitful than others. Sometimes there are going to be uh, things where you're uh, you're unaware even of your fruitfulness. But the fact is, the life that the uh, caretaker of the tree gives to us is to see to it that we bear fruit. Now, chaff, on the other hand, is dead. It's dry. It serves no purpose it's 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 impossible because it 's cut off from the source of life to actually produce any real uh, uh fruit uh it 's already dead, and so there's there's no sense there's there's just nothing you can do with it so in the end, this life of independence, this life of being cut off uh, from the source of life ends up in the end uh, uh just kind of uh, spiraling further and further onto itself, what is dead just simply becomes deader. Fortunately, you know, God takes chaff occasionally, often, and he redeems it and he shapes it into a tree by the river waters, right? Uh, And so what we see here is that the chaff ends up being blown away, no root, no, no place to be situated. Uh, and the tree uh, planted by the rivers of water has a destiny. And that destiny is to be fully in union with the caretaker, with the one who planted the tree and with his congregation. Right? So all of this ultimately comes down to what the first part of the psalm tells us, and that is simply taking God at his word. Right. The 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 person here that's called righteous uh, delights in the word of God and he delights in the word of God because it reminds him, it teaches him, it helps him understand who he is and who this God is who made him and cares for him. Listen, let me give you something practical to think about this today. Um, one of the things uh, that is we've seen uh, happen here this morning already is in the sacrament of baptism, we see played out before us the promises of God, right? We see uh, that God uh, promises to be faithful. We see that God Promises to bring to bear in our lives—the uh, uh, the work, uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us—we see that, right? Um, and we entrust ourselves to that. The thing for most of us uh, to have a sense of the presence of God in our lives uh, rests in taking God at His word and taking God at His words of His promises, of His promises. His promises. Do you understand that your destiny hangs on the promise of God? He has promised to raise you from the dead. If you're in him. He has promised to seat you eternally with him. If you're in him. Right. And so. So. The, the the issue for, for most of us to have an understanding of the rich provision of our God day to day, day in and day out, is to rest in what God has truly promised to us and what he will bring to fruition. Uh, and then he is bringing to fruition in our lives day to day. Hear these words of institution, of the Lord's Supper. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. The gifts of God for the people of God. Now, let's confess our sins together by using this prayer of confession that's printed in the bulletin and also uh, up on the screens behind me. Oh, Lord. Your law is holy and your blessings are abundant, but we receive them with ingratitude and neglect them both. We have sinned against you in thought, word and deed. Jesus, you alone are our hope. You are rich, yet you became poor for our sakes. You are Lord, yet you were meek among us. You deserve all honor, yet you grant us all mercy. You are without sin, yet you bore God's wrath for our rebellion. We can only trust your intercession for our forgiveness and your merit for our righteousness. In your name we pray. Amen. Believer, hear these words of encouragement. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. On the night which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it just as I do now ministering in his name. And he gave it to his followers. Could God bear fruit in your life in the drought of cancer? Could God bear fruit in your life in the drought of unfulfilled desires? Could God bear fruit in your life uh, in uh, the drought of constant pain, depression, fear, anxiety? Could he? Does he? Right? See, that's, that's the thing uh, about uh, being uh, in union with this God who has planted us uh, in proximity near to with all of the resources to live and to bear fruit to his glory for our good and for the, for the good of uh, the people that the Lord uh, places in and around our lives. You see, that's, that's the richness of the grace and the mercy, the sovereign grace and the sovereign mercy of the God who loves us. If you've come to that place in your spiritual life where you have no other place to go to bear fruit except uh, through this Jesus who lived, died, and rose again for you. You've professed that to a body of believers somewhere. He welcomes you today because what he's doing here today is reminding you he lived, he died, he rose again for you. He is presently with you, connected to you, in union with you. And the day will come, as this table reminds us, where we will see him face to face. And we will be with him and with our brothers and sisters Forever and ever. That's our hope. That's our destiny. Because of this God who has planted us. Who cares for us. And who provides for us. I want to remind you today that the outer ring is wine. The inner rings are grape juice. All the bread is gluten free. And just so you have an opportunity. Not only this morning to uh, be uh, reminded. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That Jesus is for you. And that he's with you. Uh, our promise keeping God has kept his promise uh, to the Brown family. As you saw earlier, Catherine Brown um, was uh, has been received, professed her faith. Uh, and so as the elders uh, come down to assist me this morning, uh, the Brown family will lead us all uh, in uh, taking uh, the Lord's Supper.